0: We are uh, continuing in our series on Peter. So uh, for the last several weeks and for a few more weeks to come, we have been uh, going through uh, important events or experiences in the life of the Apostle Peter to set some background for when we will go through the texts, First and Second Peter, that historically uh, have been attributed to him. So this is part of the, the lead up into that. And the text that we're going to cover today comes from the book of Acts, It has a lot of narrative, it has speeches from Peter, Um, and it's fitting for actually the book of Acts as a whole. About one-third of the book of Acts is uh, speeches, and most of the early ones uh, are Peter's uh, speeches. So what we're going to go through is one of those, uh, one of these very vivid um, experiences that Peter has. And I think in particular, what I'm hoping for us to uh, unlock is just how much Peter's uh, reflections on the experience that we're gonna walk through uh, of his today, it causes him to rethink his theology of how big God's love can be. So let's go through this, uh, this key narrative. Uh, it's uh, you know, a, a chunk of text, I'll break it up a little bit, but let's set, settle in to go along uh, on the journey uh, as the narrative unfolds. So we will, uh, we'll start uh, towards the beginning of Acts 10. It about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching Joppa, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Uh, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. So we're about to get into the, uh, the actual dream that he had, uh, but, you know, say what you want about the historicity of dreams like this when the Bible writes them. To me, it's highly plausible that the thing Peter dreamed about was the last thing he was thinking about right before he fell asleep. I think that's a very common experience. It's why if this dream were to happen today, Peter would be dreaming about what was on his Instagram feed, uh, like you all would, or in my case, the dream would be, uh, somehow include either Christine or the 2017 warriors, right? This is how you would contextualize it uh, to today. But here we go. So, so this is the, uh, the actual um, uh, chunk of the dream. He says, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. So before we actually uh, continue in the narrative, one caveat or one piece of context is necessary uh, in interpreting this dream, that no animals were literally harmed in this dream, This is worth bringing up. It may seem obvious to you. you. You're like, right? He's not literally doing these things. But many of us, many interpreters, especially Gentile interpreters throughout history, have taken visions like this to mean that this is the end of Judaism, or it is the end of the rituals that defined Jewish people's lives apart from Gentile lives. The idea is that if you continue, if you're a Jewish follower of Jesus or a Jewish person in general, and you continue to practice things like keeping kosher, You're being antithetical to what Jesus is freeing you from, as if observing those kinds of rituals was bondage, which, of course, it never was. The book of Acts makes it very, very clear that apostles like Peter, other followers, uh, other Jewish followers of Jesus throughout the book of Acts, never stop doing Jewish things like Eating kosher, circumcising their male babies, uh, worshiping in the synagogue and worshiping in the temple and offering sacrifices. In fact, for none of these followers of Jesus who were Jewish, did it ever occur to them that they were going to stop being Jewish in any way. So let's hold on to that as we go through the rest of this narrative uh, and avoid the more anti-Semitic consequences when we take passages like this to mean that it is, uh, it is the end uh, of Judaism, that Jesus coming was the end of that. So here we go uh, as we continue uh, further. Uh, with this metaphor, um, while, uh, this is so a little bit later. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So we find out that uh, Cornelius a Gentile who is the text calls a God fearer. So a Gentile, but Jewish adjacent. So somebody who worships and recognizes the God of Israel is the one who had sent them. So Peter and other Jewish people in his crew make this journey over to Cornelius's household. So we'll pick up the narrative there. It says, while talking with Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. Then he goes in to a gospel message. So in a little bit, he says, then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears God and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name now we get to the part of the narrative that has their reaction while Peter was still speaking these words the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. It is hard to understate uh, in this narrative just, uh, sorry, it's hard to uh, overstate in this narrative, just how much people's experiences are driving their theological reflections. Uh, The central premise of the gospel message that Peter just shared was that uh, they witnessed what Jesus did all over the region. They saw Jesus, as the text says, doing good and healing people. And then they inferred from what they saw that God had appointed Jesus. From that experience, then they could see how the prophets testified of him. I think we often uh, operate uh, on an interpretive framework, that what was going on for the apostles and various uh, uh, followers uh, of God throughout the Bible is that um, They reasoned from scriptures into believing in Jesus, right? Like that Jesus was the logical conclusion uh, of uh, rightly understanding scripture. I think we often extend it to, uh, like we would say the same for Gentile inclusion, which is the issue that they're grappling with here, right? Like the idea is, oh yeah, like if they had just read the Bible properly, they would have clearly seen that this is where the story of God was going. But that's not actually how any of these narratives unfold either in the gospel or the book of Acts or in people's own reflections throughout the other New Testament letters. They have an encounter with Jesus. They have an encounter about Jesus. They have an encounter about Gentiles. And that causes them to then rethink what they thought the biblical story was all along. They are negotiating their understanding of scripture and their understanding of their experiences in real time together. Many of us, uh, in this room would resonate with that kind of reasoning uh, to the extent that for, you know, for some people here, uh, Peter's journey of Gentile inclusion uh, or coming to realize that Gentiles should be included in God's family as is uh, is not that different from the journey that some of you all have been on in realizing the inclusion of our LGBT family into God's family as is. You know, Peter thought, God's story and the scriptures were going in one direction. Uh, But then he, as the text says, he couldn't deny the fruits of the spirit that he saw in the people that he was interacting with. He saw how God was working through Cornelius and his household. And thank God, his heart was soft enough to recognize what was going on. And thank God for those of you who have been on a similar journey for our LGBT family, uh, thank God that your heart was that soft too when you also saw the fruits of the Spirit being lived out in people that you didn't necessarily expect. Uh, As much as I love that, I'm thankful that it turns out that way. I think there's also uh, a challenge that I think is always worth bringing up when we talk about those kinds of experiences is that uh, it shouldn't have taken that level of personal experience for people to come around? Should it have? I understand that for some people that is ultimately what it takes. Uh, But uh, when you talk about the experiences that Gentiles had um, in uh, following God long before Peter accepted them or not, Uh, you would have hoped that Peter would just take their word for it. But he had to see with his own eyes. And I think it's also true uh, for many of us that, um, you know, like there there are tropes uh, out there about how, um, you know, parents within their family were non-affirming of LGBT people until one of their children came out as gay or lesbian or trans. And then, that caused them to rethink their theology. The problem with that approach, of course, is that even today, only about, according to like, uh, one of the latest Gallup surveys, about 7% of Americans are LGBT. And if it takes people coming around to defending the rights of LGBT people to like, have a direct experience with a family member coming out to them, then progress will take way too long. The reality is, is that genuine empathy for all followers of Jesus has to come from listening to the stories of other people, whether it's your direct experience or not. That is actually something that is grounded in the reality that even when Peter didn't understand what, uh, what, what the status of Gentiles were in his God family, God knew, God could hear, The voice of the disenfranchised in that situation. For Peter, this is the reality of aligning his understanding of the world to what God's understanding was uh, all along. Uh, If you are noticing uh, attention to, like as part of a subtext in this part of the, the discussions, often, you know, especially when we're talking about Uh, the particular issue of LGBT inclusion, there is this question about faith versus feelings, right? How much do our feelings or our experiences with reality uh, cause us to uh, rethink uh, our understanding of Scripture? I think there's often a fundamental tension that we ask, like, is it our understanding of Scripture that should be driving our understanding of our own experiences? Or is it the other way around? And of course, uh, the answer is yes. Like the reality is people are complicated and the way that we understand the world are inexplicably, are inextricably linked in uh, the priors that we come into an experience with and the experience itself. There is often in this debate, though, a, uh, a cudgel verse, like a verse that uh, somebody who is, uh, you know, wants to downplay the role that our feelings and experiences can play uh, in shaping our uh, interpretation of what's true. Like they, and maybe you have heard this, uh, either in this particular debate or about a, a variety of issues. It goes, the, you, you can't trust your heart and your feelings because, of course, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is often given in a lot of these discussions when you would say, like, I, I guess the Bible says this thing, either about God, the nature of God, or the nature of people, but it doesn't make sense with my experience of reality. So often the response to that is, well, you can't trust your experiences. That's what's wrong. Stick with what I am telling you the Bible teaches. That's often how that discussion goes. But I think many of us rightfully have been trained in an era to not so easily discount our feelings. And I'm very thankful for that, right? This would be reflected even in uh, our media. Our children have known this since they were very little, right? You feel what you feel and those feelings are real, right? This is, this is an anti-gaslighting uh, Approach to going, uh, going through life. And I'm very grateful for that. And even uh, among the people who would say, you, you cannot let your experience of the world interpret scripture. You have to let it be the other way around. I would argue, actually, basically, uh, you know, virtually every follower of Jesus today is already doing that in some way where their experience of the world is causing them to rethink their understanding of the Bible. One of the, like I could give dozens and dozens of examples, but I'll stick with one that I think is just relatively straightforward. And that is, what do you think, according to Genesis, God did on day two? Okay, what did God do on day two? I will, I'll give you time. I'm kidding. I'm not going to give you time to answer. We don't got time for that. The, the, so like, I think many times, uh, this is something I always struggled with in understanding the text itself. But I think many of us would, who, like, who have sat with the text and have tried to come up with explanation for in, in God's creation of the universe, the way Genesis seems to tell it, uh, we would say God made the sky separating the waters above from the waters below. That's close to like literally what the text is saying. It says God made a dome to separate the waters above from the waters below. And I hear all kinds of explanations say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The waters above, that's clouds, that has water vapor, right? So there's water in the sky and that comes down and the waters below is the ocean. That is you taking a modern cosmology and imputing it back onto the text because you can't stomach the reality that perhaps the author of Genesis did not share the same cosmology that you do. This is from various scholars' takes. If you were to try to make a composite picture of the cosmology that Bible writers operated with, this is what it looks like. This is not your third grade solar system diorama. This is what they thought back then, roughly, where the dome, the sky, was actually a solid dome with uh, slats in it that could let rain water from above through. This is, this is how they operate. And if you let Genesis speak the way that it is, it does support, right? It underscores this cosmology. But many, of, you know, many interpreters who uh, feel constrained by you know, their own idea of biblical inerrancy, right? Like for them, they get nervous about the idea that the Bible could have uh, a cosmology that we know today to be scientifically untrue. But if you are unbothered by this, then it's because you have come up with an explanation that works for you, where you're like, oh yeah, yeah, uh, that's, not, that's not a problem. You have changed, I, if you lived 2,000 years ago, I guarantee you, you would not have said, oh yeah, water vapor, that's what the clouds, that's what the waters above are, also the earth is four billion years old and the universe is 14 billion years old. Nobody thought that. There's no evidence that anybody thought that, right? This is what we're dealing with. And you, we've done this with so many things, biblical interpreters have for centuries about what the right form of government should be about even on the lgbt issue what is sexuality right these are the kinds of questions that we all have explored together as a community for centuries and have adopted adapted what we're doing on the fly now there is uh, in and of itself too that like the bible repeatedly appeals to your own sense of experience to draw you closer to God and to make sense of God, when the Psalms uh, sing verses like "Taste and see that the Lord is good," there there is an invitation. So use your senses, use your experience to draw inferences about whether you think God is good or not. So no matter how tainted our ability is to uh, understand what we're experiencing, clearly there's on some level a fundamental correspondence. But in, in what our heart thinks is good, and who God is, even in the early Jesus movement, right when Jesus is drawing, Jesus and John the Baptist are drawing followers. Their invitation is not, hey, have a Bible study with me. I will show you why Jesus and John the Baptist are the real deal. It is come and see what they are doing. And then they say, now, after I've experienced the good, the healing that they're doing, now I understand how the prophets were testifying about him all along. So when we go back to this, the heart is deceitful uh, above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It actually also helps to kind of think through uh, what did the author mean by this. And, uh, and I think there is also a trap that those of us who are very good at dis, you know, uh, sitting with our feelings can get into where we fall on the opposite side, where we would say our feelings are the sum total of truth. Like how you feel is all that matters. And that can be dangerous uh, as well. There's a a joke. So I uh, have a background in social psychology. I'm a consumer psychologist. And there's a joke among social psychologists that says, if you want to know why people do what they do, the worst thing you can do is ask them. So this is is an exaggeration of like, uh, you know, how to really assess why people do what they do. But the idea is social psychologists know in advance that we all don't know why we do what we do, and how we feel the way that we do. Um, Our our hearts or our brains or our assessment of reality really can be biased. For for psychologists, and I would argue uh, the prophet Jeremiah, the more interesting question is not whether uh, you can, um, whether your experiences are a reliable guide to reality or not. It's to identify the ways in which your experiences can get Distorted. So, what's really interesting, in uh, if you look in context, uh, Jeremiah just a, just another verse later actually says he he provides an example in context. This is this passage is talking about how Israel is going to find themselves in a self-imposed uh, um, deportation from the land, and it will be when you read the flow, full flow of the narrative. It's because of the oppression and injustice. That Israel uh, at the time exerted on the vulnerable people in their community. It is a condemnation of those with wealth and power. And um, like, so j- just another verse later, uh, Jeremiah says, like the partridge hatching what it did not lay, so are all who amass wealth unjustly. In the end, they'll be proved to be fools. And I think that's actually very consistent with like one angle that social psychologists dissect these questions of to to what extent uh, and how and when are our experiences an unreliable guide to reality. It's that power, privilege, and wealth are inherently self-protective. Once we have it, we are motivated to see the world in a way that reinforces our privilege, power, and wealth. That is what Jeremiah is condemning Israel for. And that's one way to keep in mind if you are ever to think about the feelings that you have on a variety of issues, is to ask yourself what are the forces that would motivate me to not see this experience clearly? And this is also, um, you you know, this is a challenge that we all will have to do, and we do regularly across all kinds of domains in life. Trying to find the truth amidst your feelings and experiences is hard work and is impossible to do alone. Uh, There are therapists, friends, your community, people who don't just tell you what you want to hear but people who are there to challenge you to see the world more clearly. This is the idea that is also spoken in Proverbs as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Even in the issue of Gentile inclusion that we're talking about with Peter um, uh, in this text, Peter himself is on a journey of being sharpened by other people uh, who also have experiences with and something to say about uh, whether Gentiles should be included or not. Because you would think that based on this experience that Peter had that we just read about, that it'd be all good. From there on out, uh, Peter becomes the vanguard of Gentile inclusion uh, in the Jesus movement. But that actually doesn't happen. And the way that contrast comes out really sharply throughout the scriptures is by a, what appears to be a very serious conflict between Peter and Paul. And what's funny, too, is you can see, actually, like, independent of this particular conflict that we'll talk about, there are threads throughout the New Testament letters that speak to uh, how challenging it is for the community centered around Peter and the community centered around Paul to understand each other. So Paul actually talks about this in 1 Corinthians where he laments my brothers and sisters some from chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you what i mean is this one of you says i follow paul another i follow apollos another i follow cephas still another i follow christ right the idea is there are, you know there are celebrity thought leaders uh in these communities and um you know you wouldn't be familiar with that right like there's nobody in your mind that when uh, you have a question you're like oh i wonder what that person thinks, because I'm sure what they think is probably the sum total of knowledge uh, on this subject. This is a temptation that we all have, and this was something that was making it very difficult for the Jesus movement to progress, and it gets pronounced. Uh, It's a pronounced conflict between Peter and Paul. Uh, In the Petrine letters, there is this reflection as well. Uh, uh, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction, right? So it's an intra-community acknowledgement. There's some hard stuff going on trying to figure this out. In the conflict between Peter and Paul uh, themselves, there is uh, a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia where he actually talks about, he puts on blast a con- uh, conflict that he had with Peter sometime after Peter's experience with Cornelius. Here's what Paul says in Galatians When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. I would love to have believed that Peter's like, single experience with Cornelius or however many others he had since then were enough to get him to where God was pushing him to be. But clearly, for Peter and for all of us, it is a work in progress. And it requires having a heart soft enough to respond when there are other people in our lives to sharpen our perspective. This is actually, you know, like uh, one of the most serious uh, conflicts, you know, described between uh, apostles there. You know, the, we, we have paintings that try to, you know, uh, stimulate the, the unity uh, between all the apostles. And I would say, by and large, that, that is true. But, you know, the, like it's immortalized in artwork like this. I like to imagine that this is, they, this is them posing because God told them to be nice to each other for the picture. That's how that's all they can do for it. This is probably a more accurate uh, description. Of what they would look like or how they felt. But actually, I think the fundamentals are in place throughout this conflict to actually reach a beautiful resolution. And I think that resolution helps us understand the um, the, the overall point that we're making. So here is later on in Acts, um, where Paul and Peter and others seem to have come together to sort through this issue of Gentile conclusion and arrive at consensus. And this is how they talk about it. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul uh, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. I am thankful that they were able to sort through their experiences together. They were able to discern where God was going. And I'm hopeful that we too as a community can be that way for all kinds of experiences we have where we can see the world sometimes in diametrically opposing ways. So there's one last part of, one last tension uh, in this discussion that I wanted us to, uh, to talk through. And that is another, uh, another conflict that uh, is occurring uh, below the text. So, so recall that in this story, uh, Peter is at a crossroads at Joppa. Right? So God is calling Peter, Uh, to do something uh, contrary to what he was thinking. Many interpreters uh, throughout uh, the centuries have noticed uh, an uncanny connection uh, between Peter and another figure in the Bible who is in uh, a similar situation. So this is somebody else who finds themselves uh, at a crossroads at Joppa because God was calling them to preach the Gentiles. Um, that is uh, Peter's, uh, perhaps this, this other figure is even Peter's namesake. So remember, Peter's name, uh, as described in other parts uh, of the New Testament, is Simon, son of Jonah. And uh, unlike Peter, this other person who, when they're called to uh, preach to the Gentiles, does the exact opposite. They do not uh, accept the invitation from God, uh, and they run in the opposite direction. That is Jonah, the story of Jonah uh, in the Bible itself. So there is this, um, many interpreters, again, they find this deep connection, this deep contrast between Simon, son of Jonah, and Jonah of the uh, Old Testament story. So in order to, uh, to like, think through the way that this contrast can be helpful, it helps to have some context really quickly, in case you're not familiar with it, or if you've only thought of the story in one way, uh, about Jonah. So... The story of Jonah, as many uh, Bible class teachers teach it, especially to kids, tends to take this very obedience-centric framework. So it will tell the story this way. It will say, first, God called Jonah to preach to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were in Assyria. Assyria was the brutal oppressor of Israel that caused them to go into captivity in the first place. So God is calling Jonah to go preach the good news to them and offer them repentance. And Jonah is at a crossroads of Joppa. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. So we we say, Jonah ran away from God. Then, while Jonah is running away from God, he ends up on a ship and the ship is uh, in danger of being shipwrecked entirely. So uh, fish swallows him. And then while Jonah is in the belly of the fish, um, he uh, repents. So he takes that, that time uh, inside a fish's belly as we would do to, uh, like, to you know, rethink uh, his ways. And so then we say Jonah ran to God. So he repented, he returned to God. So then when Jonah gets spit out, By that fish He is ready He has learned That he should have Followed God all along And he's ready to go preach To the Ninevites In Assyria So then we say Jonah ran with God And the way the story ends um, Jonah uh, Jonah preaches the message uh, The the good news And then the uh, And then the Ninevites in a glorious, miraculous manner, repent. Even the animals in the story repent. That's how the story goes. A very fun parable that, uh, of the whole thing. And and then, but then Jonah was mad at the outcome. He couldn't stomach. That the Assyrians actually repented and God was blessing them, and then we say Jonah ran ahead of God. So I don't know. This is this framework is fine to get like the basic premise of the story. I think what it entirely misses it, it makes the whole story out to be like, look, are you going to be going you know, to run with God, run against God, run blah blah blah. That's not uh, the obedience is not really the main point of this story. This is a parable. It is a parody of what an Israelite prophet should be like. And, what, and the way that it makes this parody happen is by causing you to rethink who the heroes and villains are in this story. Now, we normally think that prophets, the role of an Israelite prophet is to speak truth to power. Instead, what we find Jonah doing is protecting his nation's interests and acting more like an establishment prophet uh, in the process, not a prophet of of God. And what the story is painfully getting its readers to realize is that any time that we have a vested interest in defending our own nation above a willingness to be merciful and kind to those who oppose us, we have completely missed the point. For those of you who are celebrating or reflecting on July 4th and America's founding, um, there there are resonances to Jonah's problem uh, in uh, in our context as well. So for many of you, uh, as I know in this community, you may feel very strong ambivalence, so very strong positive and negative feelings about how to feel about our country and its role in the world. Um, there is an important reflection that I think is very much along the theme of Jonah that uh, author Erna Kim Hackett captures very well. She said, she, she is talking about white supremacy uh, and racism in this country, but you can we can, Located more broadly with those of us who have power, privilege, and wealth in this country, she says, "'White Christianity suffers from a bad case "'of Disney princess theology. "'As each individual reads scripture, "'they see themselves as the princess in every story. "'They are Esther, never Xerxes or Haman. "'They are Peter, but never Judas. "'They are the woman anointing Jesus, never the Pharisees. "'They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt.'" For the citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when it is studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society. And it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. Stories like Jonah's, are trying to get us to see the world outside ourselves through the experiences of those we have marginalized. Jonah, the story itself, actually goes into comedic proportions to show this contrast. Here is how, it, uh, how Jonah describes, uh, or how the, how the book describes Jonah's reaction when he sees the Ninevites repenting. Jonah thought this was utterly wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, come on, Lord, wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled to Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy. Like, I know you were this loving. That's why I didn't want want to do this in the first place. That's how absurd this situation is. These stories highlight just how stupid we look when we fail to love our enemies and become our enemies in the process. This parable actually resonates with so many of Jesus's parables that you may have varying degrees of familiarity with. Jonah, uh, when he says at this point, he uh, he further adds on to the story. He says, at this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me because it would be better for me to die than to live. There is the parable of the Good Samaritan, a famous one, where Jesus uh, is challenged uh, by his, uh, his audience. That was a, that, those were the words Patty used to describe it when she was hosting last week. It's not that they were asking Jesus a question. They were challenging him. I thought that was very good. That's right. They, they, have, uh, they have their own motives in mind when they come up to him, where they are asking, who is my neighbor? They are looking for boundary conditions on how far their love can extend. There is another parable, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, where there is a vineyard owner. He pays many people who come to work throughout the day. At the end of the day, he pays everybody who worked the same amount, regardless of whether they worked all day or worked uh, only came in at the end. And this is the reaction of the characters in the story who thought it was unfair. They say, those who were hired last worked one hour, and they received the same pay as we did. There's in the parable of the prodigal son, where uh, when there is the uh, younger son of this uh, of father goes away, wastes their inheritance. They ultimately come to repent. They come back home, and their father is so extremely gracious for that son returning, and they throw a celebration for him. The older son, who was there the whole time, does not uh, appreciate the love being shown on on the younger son. And he says, I served you all these years, and I never disobeyed your instructions. And he goes on to say, but you didn't throw a party for me. It is helpful to see the contrasting response from God or the vineyard owner or Jesus or whoever it is uh, in these stories. So this is actually like in, in contrast to Jonah's complaint, this is what, this is actually how Jonah the book ends. The closing thought has God in the story saying, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Of course, why would God not have concern for them too? Here's how Jesus responds when he tells the story of of, uh, religious uh, leaders uh, in Israel's day, ignoring this uh, poor person who was beat up on the side of the road and a Samaritan, a religious outsider, is the one who helps them. Jesus asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? It was the Samaritan. God was working through the outsider in that story. And in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, the vineyard owner, when the workers at the end of the day complain like, hey, we're not being paid unfairly, he says, are you resentful because I'm generous? I mean, you got what you agreed to in this transaction. Why does it hurt you so much that good things are happening to other people? That is how that story goes. And then lastly, in the parable of the prodigal son, the father says, we had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Right now, in your life, there are people who you struggle to see God working through. People who, if God blessed them, you'd struggle to be happy for them. They are uh, people who uh, you see signs that they should belong in God's family, but those signs cause you great dissonance in your mind. These are your coworkers, your friends, family members, perhaps estranged family members. They are voters who supported the other guy, and they are people who support policies that you protest against. But Peter's encounter with Cornelius or Jonah's encounter with the Ninevites or everyone's encounter with Jesus the way the Gospels and Acts seem to tell it, tell us that Jesus is a force that causes us, that when we witness it, when we see God showing us what God's love and God's family look like, we're constantly being pushed to see that God's love and God's family are always bigger than we could have possibly fathomed. And the sooner we can grasp it, the sooner we can find ourselves rejoicing with and running with God rather than running against God. We're not going to transition into our time together where we take communion. One of the greatest symbols that we have of our unity together, that we belong to each other, that we are family with each other, regardless of our differences, And we do this through the tradition that began in Jesus' own day, where the scriptures say, for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as I hope is clear to you throughout our text, all are welcome at this table.